I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, James Bond. Bond. James Bond. It's an introduction you probably don't even need. Even if you haven't actually seen one of the blockbuster movies about Ian Fleming's Agent 007. I had never even seen a Bond movie until last year when I marathoned all five decades of them within the span of a few months. What really struck me, though, while watching was just how immediately familiar it all was. I already knew his universally recognized John Barry theme music, and I knew how he ordered his vodka martinis. I knew he had a penchant for betting beautiful women with ludicrous names, a talent for last-second escapes, and his signature of dispatching outlandish supervillains with high technology and pithy one-liners. And I knew all of this before seeing even a single frame of one of the 23 official Bond movies that have been released since 1962's Dr. No, starring Sean Connery in the lead role. I knew all of this because we live in a popular culture that has been marinated in James Bond pastiches, parodies, and homages like Our Man Flint, Danger Mouse, The Kingsman, and Mission Impossible. The character and his movies have been parodied in comedy films like Austin Powers and TV shows like Get Smart. More than any other character or franchise, James Bond has defined the tone and tropes of spy thriller fiction and the role of the cinematic secret agent. And why wouldn't he? James Bond is undeniably one of the coolest action heroes ever to be put to page or screen. He's unflappable and clever in the face of impossible odds, and he regularly does impossible things in the coolest way possible. It's not all that hard to understand why this character is the star of the world's longest continuous film series, with the 24th installment, Spectre, starring Daniel Craig as 007, to be released later this year. These films have collectively grossed nearly $5 billion at the box office, and it's been estimated that nearly a quarter of the world's population has seen at least one Bond film. Whether he's battling alongside ninjas inside a volcano base, fleeing skiing specter agents in the Swiss Alps, trading barbs with villains at a high-stakes casino in Montenegro, dueling the world's greatest assassin on a remote island of the South China Seas, or saving the human race on board a space station orbiting the planet, audience seem to have an inexhaustible appetite for the adventures of Britain's greatest secret agent. So let's pile into our armor-plated Aston Martins, chill some champagnes, and ready our post-mortem one-liners, because this month we're talking about the genre-defying super spy, 007 James Bond. Let's meet the panel. First, a returning panelist. He's a programmer, game designer, and the author of numerous role-playing books from the Numenera campaign setting. Good to have you back, Ryan Shaddock. Chaddock, Ryan Chaddock. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, returning to the show again, he's a columnist for Comic Book Resources. Comic Should Be Good blog. He has a couple of news stories published in a pair of Airship 27's new pulp compilations, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective Volume 7 and The Domino Lady Volume 1. Welcome back to the show, Greg Hatcher. Thank you. It's nice to be back. And finally, the odd job to my Auric Goldfinger, <laughs> Mr. Casey Doran. Oh, I've not been back to this show at all. This is my first show. (laughs) 
First oh. show. First show. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so already we're getting into the espionage. So I want to start this conversation <laughs> by digging into the origins of James Bond. I think there are a lot of people out there who don't realize that he's not just a movie character, but he actually originated in a series of 11 novels and two short story collections by writer Ian Fleming in the 1950s. Now, this was a guy who was originally working in British naval intelligence and was also the author of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. What? Yes. <laughs> Believe it or not. So, Greg, I want to start this conversation with you. I know that you're a huge fan of the literary James Bond. Could you describe the Bond novels uh, in terms of tone and content? Do they have a lot in common with the movies that they've inspired? Um, well, they, as the movies have gone on, they have less and less in common. Um, the first four... Uh, Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger and Thunderball have they're very much based on the novels. You're not in for a huge shock if you read the books if and you're coming to them from the movies. But as you go on, the the movies got bigger and bigger and louder and weirder and then there would be like a a conscious effort on the part of the Broccoli Studios. They would like look at themselves and think, "Oop, we got to pull back. And then suddenly you'd get after, say, a movie like Moonraker, which is just completely out of control. You follow that with something like Free Your Eyes Only, which, again, it goes right back to the books. That is based very strongly on two of the short stories in the Free Your Eyes Only collection. It's based on uh, on Free Your Eyes Only, the title, and, and uh, also Risico. It's kind of those two short stories mashed up together. So the Bond that we're seeing in the books, is it the same Bond we've seen in various degrees in the movies? Um, well, kind of. Here's the thing. The Bond of the books, Ian Fleming's James Bond, is not really a character per se. He's, he's more of a, a fantasy fiction suit for the reader to step into. Hmm. You know, it's it's like if you if you're reading a story about, say, Sherlock Holmes or Lord Peter Whimsey or even Star Trek with Mr. Spock or something like that, you don't really you don't identify with those guys. You don't want to be them. You want to spend time with them. It, with James Bond, it's more like you want to step into his body and be that guy and live in his world. That was what that was Ian Fleming's gift. And he he struggled with it. He uh, he would. He desperately wanted to be taken seriously as a writer, but he had this idea that James Bond was one size fits all. And he would he would he would take James Bond and he would invest these novels with actual literary merit and he would get respect because Ian Fleming was I don't know. He was he was a, a mass of contradictions. He really wanted people to think he was tough and school and cool and drawing on his military intelligence background and that James Bond was based on his own real life. But he also was just a huge, huge celebrity fanboy and he wanted to be seen as a celebrity and he was a real social climber and he mm. desperately wanted the respect of people in his social circle like Raymond Chandler and, and Cole Porter and, and so on. And it was very it was very contradictory. He uh, he hated that critics beat up on his books and laughed at his books. And Ian Fleming himself, he would like he would deflect that in interviews. He would he would laugh at the books himself. But Kingsley Amos, who wrote he wrote one of the great books about James Bond. It's called the James Bond Dossier. And he also wrote a, a Bond pastiche himself. That is the best of the pastiches. It's called Colonel Sun. But Kingsley Amos had this great 
quote that you always bear in mind when you're you're reading the novels. Ian Fleming laughed at his books. He never laughed in his books. Mm. There's none of the winking of the audience mm. that we've come to expect in the movies. Even in the early Connery efforts, there's a certain amount of tongue-in-cheek. That is not there in the books. Mm. So it's yeah. a bit more serious, a lot more gritty? Well, it's gritty in the sense that, you know, you get swept up in it. You put the book down and you realize there's just no fucking way. <laughs> you know, you put the book down at the end of Dr. No and you realize that James Bond has, you know, basically in a ripped T-shirt and jeans, has defeated Dr. No's entire torture course. He's killed a giant squid with a steak knife and a bit of bent molding. And then he's run away. He's rescued the girl. He's beaten all the henchmen and he dumps a load of bird shit on Dr. No and gets away on the island all while being torn to, you know, he's he's bleeding out from a dozen different places. And you put it down and you think, no, (laughs) just no. Casey, I want to toss this to you. Sure. You actually ventured into the dark, scary world of actually reading to prepare yourself for this panel, you were in a Bond novel. Oh, yeah. I read and didn't finish. Uh, so I read Spy Who Loved Me. Oh. How, no, wait. Th- wait. Hold on a sec. Before I do that, which which is the one? From Russia with Love. It's from Russia, it is from Russia with Love. Yes. I read the majority of From Russia with Love because I'd never read an Ian Fleming novel before, only watched the movies. Um, and it, what's fascinating about... Uh, so you know that, yeah, in a James Bond movie, you get James Bond pretty soon. Sometimes you get a setup with the villain. Um, but you know, you're going to see James Bond, a lot of James Bond. He's going to do his signature catchphrase. And for the first 40% of the book, there is only a few mentions of the fact that there is a spy named James Bond. It's all about the characters in Russia. Like, and that to me was pretty incredible, actually. Uh, so I, I got, I, you do get a bit of a different sense about the type of storytelling because he's, he's obviously taking, Ian Fleming is obviously crafting a narrative that's not like a procedural spy novel that stars James Bond from start to finish. He's actually doing something kind of totally different. And that, that surprised me. Well, Part of that was he had just met Raymond Chandler and from Russia with Love was his effort to impress. Oh. That was when he was having his moment <laughs> where it's like, no, I can be literary. I can experiment. <laughs> and um well, uh but but I will say that that was what that was that was all she wrote. So I've never I don't have wouldn't really have too many designs to go back and read too much of it. And to be honest, after the prep for this panel, I probably won't watch another James Bond movie again for a very long time. <laughs> it's all bonded out. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll probably see the Spectre, I suppose. But well, well, we still have this sort of on your brain, and I want to sort of pull you into this too, there, Ryan. Let's talk about the Bond character because I think one of the really interesting things about Bond as a character is that he, as you mentioned. Uh, Greg, he's not really defined. He's sort of a cipher that you can sort of project the reader or the viewer onto. He's cool in a lot of different ways, but you don't really get like a backstory for Bond. You don't really get a an origin story for Bond. He's not really the sort of person like Batman where you can say, this is why he Bonds all the time. <laughs> he's... <laughs> There have been six separate actors that have played Bond over the five decades that these official films from Ian Entertainment have come out. Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and now Daniel Craig. What sort of qualities should the character of James Bond have? What sort of things makes Bond a good Bond? What makes an actor a good Bond? And 
while we're looking at potentially seeing another James Bond start appearing in films probably in the next five years or so, what is your version of the character, and what would you like this next actor to be? Well, for me, see, I I actually think that Bond is a lot like Batman in that he's not... Because, I, I, you know, the thing about Batman, I mean, the thing where he's, his parents die, and, and, and we we seem to think that gives him a lot of motivation, but lots of people's parents die, that, and they don't become vigilantes. I think that, you know, the thing about Bond is, is like Batman, he's this iconic almost demigod of in his case masculinity i think that bond is sort of this idea of maleness um and that's why he gets to always have whatever women he's interested in even if that you know and of course there's consequences but he's he's out there kind of just doing whatever he wants to do and and that includes the ability to kill without legal consequences he gets to you know he has authority figures that tell him what to do and he kind of sticks to it but kind of does his own thing he believes in sort of living by his own code and and by his wits i mean i think he's just raw masculine energy he's adolescent i I think that's what he's raw adolescent power fantasy because that's naming going down the line everything that a 15 year old boy wants to do so is is that what it is is that what it is, Greg? Is this essentially just a masculine power fantasy? I wouldn't say masculine. I think Casey nailed it. It's like a, an adolescent boy's daydream. And <laughs> seriously, because, no. Yeah. That's how Ian Fleming created the books. That's where this comes from. That's I mean, he wrote Casino Royale. He was he was about to get he was about to get married. He was about to marry Anne Rothermere, and and Ian Fleming really liked being a bachelor. He liked to drink. He liked to party. He liked to do the things that James Bond does, and and he was about to give all that up and be a grown-up married man. So he went off to Jamaica to his estate at GoldenEye, and he just he just blew out Casino Royale. He just sat down and wrote it. And it was pulled together from, you know, his daydreams and kind of half-remembered anecdotes from his time in British intelligence. And a lot of it was just just panache, just sounding authoritative without ever actually being authoritative. But doesn't he, I mean, he really hits a lot of notes that I think that I mean, he strikes a chord with all of us. Like, we all get that. I mean, he's describing something that we all understand, this sort of like, uh, this idea that you could just, jet set around the world being awesome exactly right oh yeah that's what i I think that's why it's so important that's what gives the the novels their power and when he wanted to follow it up what he would do is like he would he would fly to new york and hang around and go to some jazz clubs and then he would translate that and he would he would level it up and it became live and let die fighting Hmm. you know the gangster that's masquerading as a reincarnated zombie of himself in Harlem, <laughs> and and um, serious, and you know, and he would, he would just he would level it up, and he he that was what sold it was the, the the books are not espionage; they have nothing to do with intelligence gathering or spying or any of that. They are heroic fantasy novels in contemporary spy drag. James Bond is a knight who is dispatched by his king to go and slay a dragon. In Doctor No, there actually is a fucking mechanical dragon. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay? Right? That's, you know, that's yeah. what they are. That's why the Bond novels that work the best are the ones with the ginormous, monstrous, wizard-type villains like Auric Goldfinger or 
or Dr. No or Blofeld and Spectre. The, you, the Bond villains have to be huge. Right. You know, when you were, you were saying that, I, uh, at first you were talking about, oh, well, it's not, there's not much spy stuff going on there. There's, uh, I was thinking about watching Dr. No. I rewatched it for, after it's been a long time since I've seen Dr. No. And it certainly is surely one of the Bond movies with the least amount of action in it. Like, the action is very few and far between. Partially, I guess, because they hadn't actually established the precedent of all of the beats that a Bond movie needed, all the crazy fights and explosions and car chases. Um, but however, the beginning of it is very much like a, a procedural, uh, like a by-the-numbers procedural ep- espionage story without too many surprises. Up until the end, when you get the crazy shit with Dr. No's, like, uh, his island and his fortress or whatever. And his crazy robot hands. Yeah, and, and his robot hands, It's yes. weird because when you get to things like the robot hands, it really jumps out at you because the rest of the movie has been so restrained. Right, right. That you tend to look at James Bond in a certain way, and that's really what the series was during its sort of heyday. And it doesn't really get that way until you get to Goldfinger, where mm-hmm. you have the crazy escapes all the time, and you have ludicrously named women, and explosions, and supervillains with these insane gimmicks, <laughs> and henchmen that all have some sort of unusual deformity right. or a, a signature <laughs> gadget that they use. Right. But... It's amazing how streamlined and uh, kind of trimmed down Dr. No is because it really kind of feels like this is the sort of thing that would have been a response to the later ones because this series does kind of go through those kind of waves where it kind of ratchets up crazy, 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 and it hits its apex. And then they go streamlined and do it a bit more gritty and a bit more bare bones. And they've done this like two or three times, the most recent one being with the uh, Casino Royale movie. Right. And you can say that the Timothy Dalton movies are that same way, too. Exactly. They they brought it really down to earth after they'd taken the train off the rails and crashed it. Well, there's there's two news stories that get written about James Bond. The first one is... Has James Bond run out of gas? <laughs> and the other one is James Bond is back. And, and, and those stories, in, in truth, he never really went away. <laughs> you you can you can point to which movies those stories got written about. Absolutely, you know, and um, yeah, it's kind of weird the sort of ongoing relevance of this character because you have this movie series which has continuously been putting out movies. I think with the longest absence of time being. 1989 to 1995. So that's like six years between License to Kill and GoldenEye. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. fall of the Berwyn Wall happened during that time. So that was a real question of, does this character still relevant? Then he has a hugely successful film. And again, Bond is back. But GoldenEye even addresses that. I mean, it, it specifically... It's part of know. the plot. I mean, obviously, they... Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of thing I get is, how is it that Batman can never have more than four movies in his series before there's a complete reboot? I mean, like a hard reboot. What is it that keeps James Bond going? What is it about this character that we can have now leading into 24 continuous films without a hard reboot, without a change of ownership of the license, without a different directorial style? Uh, what is it that makes Bond different from all these other characters? I, I think it's I think Bond movies are like David Bowie. I think they are chameleons. Um, is that it doesn't matter in what era they're in, they are always able to ape 
a style of another more popular type of movie. Like, for example, you know, The Live and Let Die is a black exploitation movie that turns into a James Bond movie with some crazy shit into it. Um, License uh, to Kill is essentially just Miami Vice plus Scarface uh, yes. versus James Bond. <laughs> right. And and uh, Man with a Golden Gun is is a is kind of has like a kung fu movie attached to it in the middle somewhere. You know, I think and and you move forward to. Even Daniel Craig, James, the most recent James Bonds. I mean, those are those are aping the same style of the sort of Mission Impossible, born fanta- identity, yeah, born identity stuff. That you know, all the all the parkour and all of the uh, uh, the Daniel Craig James Bond movies remind me so much of the shaky cam uh, parkour stuff that's in J- J- the born born identity movies and stuff. So I think I think the success is the fact that it, not unlike. David Bowie uh, can be a chameleon to the popular sort of forms of the genre and can sort of seep into it and then be interesting. That's why it was insane in the 70s because there was everything about the 70s film uh, was completely off the wall and unexpected. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, it kind of comes back to what I was talking about. I think the character is larger than the movies and, and addresses something so innate in a lot of us that... You know, Quantum of Solace was a terrible movie, but I still went to see it twice. Like, is it, you know, like it had James Bond in it. I wanted to see it. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I it, I don't think it matters. I mean, they could put him. In, they could do any movie, and I would still want to see it because I want to see what he does, and I want to see that character do more things because it's so much larger than life I, it's like you know it's like going to church <laughs> whoa you, you know with a you lot more strangulation I mean, in it <laughs> sure i mean it's 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 this church of 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 being a, a larger than life hmm. it does have that kind of shared experience to it but it's that character that keeps drawing you back and i've been thinking about what are the elements that makes a good bond what are the things that you want bond to be and the things that I kept coming mm. down to is what do I want this Bond actor to be? What do I want this character to be on screen? And one of them is the piercing gaze. That huh. Bond has to be able to stand in a room or sit at a table without doing anything or just watching. And he has to sort of pop off the screen. He has to be somebody who commands the audience attention, even if he's playing it cool. And the best Bond actors, I know Connery does this really, really well, where he's just sort of sitting there and you're like, that guy's a badass. Why is he a badass? He's not doing anything right now. But there's something about him. You have to give off this aura. And I think that sort of cultured, suave kind of look to him where you're just like, you know what? Wearing a tuxedo is fucking awesome. Right. That he has to do things in a way that make even doing the most innocuous thing look cool. So with you guys, what is it that you want out of a Bond performance? What do you want Bond to be doing on screen or on the page? What 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 is this thing that makes the character James Bond? Well, m- my feeling about this, and I'm, you know, I don't mean to keep banging this drum. I really am kind of an Ian Fleming purist about this. I want to see the guy that I know from the books. Now, what you guys are defining as, you know, looking badass no matter what or something like that, I guess... My thing with this is the actor needs to be able to project a sense of dangerousness, but it's under it's under control. It is something that is he he owns it. And you you can look at other like vigilante super spy type heroes, and there are many of them. And most of them make the mistake with the James Bond idea that James Bond is cool. 
And that is not the case. James Bond is not cool. James Bond is a regular guy. His world is cool. Hmm. The world he lives in is so much cooler than ours. It's full of beautiful girls and fast cars and you can drink as much as you want and never get hungover. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, you can play cards for high stakes and never lose your house. And, and your bad guys are all living inside hollowed out volcanoes and you're good at everything. And, you know, so the actor needs to be a guy who can move in that world and make you believe it and that's where that sense of dangerousness i think that you're describing comes from it's not so much that he's dangerous it's that he's capable it's that he can live in this incredibly amped up amphetamine fueled adrenaline world and it's okay he lives there he can handle it you know that's why i like daniel craig so much is that he you know he looks like a guy who puts up sheetrock for a living and you know like somebody threw him in a tuxedo and he's really not supposed to be there and so in that sense he's the audience right i mean we none of us would feel comfortable in that world you know we're observers just like oh, he's, speak and, for and yourself he, he plays, he plays, yeah right <laughs> but it's like he's not he doesn't he, feel, he feels like an outsider it's almost like you know, somebody going to a fancy party and and just being the star of that party as opposed to just kind of barely getting by. That's really what he, he pulls off. I think Daniel Craig does that really well. Um, that's actually something that not, I wanted to sort of get into because we're talking about this scale, the sort of danger that's inherent in James Bond and the world that he inhabits. Because this scale seems to exist for all the actors that have played Bond on the big screen. And I guess you could say that on one end of the scale... He's a gentleman, and he's a guy who's very cultured. He knows fine wine and good food and expensive clothing and nice cars. On the other hand, he's a guy who, if you met him in an alley, he would strangle you dead with his bare hands, dump you in a dumpster, and then throw out some pithy line about it. <laughs> that he's telling a joke to himself about murder. <laughs> so the real question I sort of have on here is that he's both a gentleman and a killer. But where does your bond, your personal bond, fall on that? Is he like when you said Daniel Craig is a killer that they threw into a tuxedo? Is this a murderer who's comfortable with high society? Or is this a gentleman who's comfortable with murder, and which do you prefer? Uh, Greg? Is that the, the question on the floor? I guess I would land on the gentleman comfortable with murder. Um, the Because James Bond is doing his duty. He's a soldier. He's not a sadist. He thinks of himself as pest control. You know, he's he's doing his duty for for queen and country. The um, the thing that's interesting about the books, the thing that makes it work is and in, I think this is true in the movies, too. The Bond movies that have the most power is when James Bond is personally invested as well as patriotically invested. Mm. In other words, the 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 movie kicks up a notch when it becomes a personal contest between James Bond and, say, Goldfinger. You know, it's not it's not enough for James Bond to just defeat Goldfinger. He also beats him at cards and steals his girlfriend and then beats him at golf. And he's, <laughs> you know, there, there's a certain amount of personal animosity that comes into play, and, it, and it's a scale of rising action. Hmm. And uh, the book itself is very much built around that idea. The, the opening quote is, um, in Chicago they have a saying, once... 
Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence. The third time is enemy action. So <laughs> act one, happenstance, That's is the, uh, the interlude in Miami. Act two, coincidence, is the, the golf game thing. And then act three, Fort Knox, is mm. enemy action. And, mm. uh, and it's very deliberately structured that way. Hmm. So, Casey, I'm going to toss this to you now. Do you want a gentleman killer or a killer gentleman? I think I I think I, I think I'm aligning with you, with what you've told me before is that I I I have that real special uh reservation for Sean Connery because he feels like he's dangerous like in like uh, you know that that on the turn of a turn of a heel he could just lash out and kill you um but he also is can can just be smooth say as few enough few words and then make it happen you know like uh, so the so the killer who can be a gentleman just seems to make the most sense to me. I don't know. He's not. I mean, I always contrast him with like say John Le Carre's Smiley, right? And they're about as. I mean, Smiley's the anti Bond, really. You know. Um, uh, I I want I I look for the Smiley character to be the clever gentleman, the guy who he's Smiley's never really getting getting himself into the dangerous position, but he has to be the the chess master who's moving the pieces around and be clever. Um and so he has to be obsequious and exist in this in this weird world of of uh, espionage pat- patronage. I want him I want Bond to be the opposite of that. I want him to be the fucking thug. Um and he is for the most part. Yeah, I, I kind of think that too. I'm sort of on the mind of I want Bond to look like a guy that could kill me, but he looks really comfortable in that suit with that nice Chardonnay, and I'm not really sure what's going <laughs> on there. But I kind of like, because I see it in Connery, I see it in Craig, and I actually do see it in Dalton as well, that there's an element of I could see this guy totally kicking my ass, where with I think both Brosnan and Roger Moore, they're both very pretty, and they're definitely gentlemen first. That this is a guy who learned how to eat with the right fork before he learned how to garrote a guy. <laughs> Where with the other guys, I kind of get it's the other way first. That part of his training was learning how to use the right fork, learning how to uh, appraise expensive jewelry and, and fine wine. And the murder came second where... Yeah, I, I wonder about that. I tend to like sort of the killer bond. I like something where there's sort of a masculinity about him rather than a prettiness. And... I guess that kind of leads into my next question, which is the morality of Bond. Like you talked about, Greg, saying that he does it for Queen and Country, but sometimes he also does it because it's personal. And we talked a bit about in our Conan and the Barbarian episode that some lead characters, we consider them the hero because the camera's pointed at them. Hmm. Bond does a lot of questionable things. I mean, he's somebody who regularly kills like hundreds of people without hesitation, without seeming remorse. Sometimes he jokes about it. He's clever and cool, but he can sometimes be incredibly condescending or dismissive to people, oftentimes women in that role. Uh, Is Bond a hero? And where is he morally? And more importantly, where do you think James Bond falls on the standard Dungeons & Dragons alignment guide? Like, is he lawful good? Is he neutral? I mean, where does he fall on this? So since I'm asking a and d question, I want to throw it to you first, Ryan. Where is this guy? (laughs) Well, he's clearly not lawful. I think he's clearly chaotic. Um, well, no, see, but he does everything for country. I think he's neutral then, and he's not good. I don't think he's evil, so he's true neutral, I guess. I don't know. I don't think the D&D alignment system is very good for <laughs> things like this. Um, 
So, well, uh, but in terms of ethics, actual sort of ethics, I prefer him not to be ethical. I really enjoyed... Well, I well, I, I like the idea that he does bad things and then kind of has to deal with the consequences. There's a scene in Casino Royale when he and the female interest is like they're crying in the shower together, you know, after he kills someone like it's it's a beautiful. That's probably my favorite scene in all of Bond is him sort of trying to grapple with being because, you know, Casino Royale really is a hard reboot sort of uh they, they they started out where he's doing his first kills and they really kind of explore what that how difficult that would be for someone to sort of basically be an assassin for a nation um and you know people shouldn't have find that easy and uh you know his character grows i think over the course of that series so far um and that's that's what i would prefer i i like it when they do that um but I think that is a break from previous Bonds. I, I don't think that he was very, you know, he was very cavalier about killing in previous versions. And maybe that's more closer to what his character really is if you're looking at it sort of as an average. Um, I think his sense of humor is a big part of his character, and Daniel Craig doesn't really do it as much. Um, you know, I was watching, to change this a little bit, I, yeah, I was watching on Her Majesty's Secret Service yesterday, you know, just to see George Lazenby. And uh, what was amazing to me was how flirtatious he is. And really all of them are, except to some degree Craig. The flirtatiousness is such a huge part of Bond's mm-hmm. character. And I think that that's part of that sort of masculine side of him. And, and maybe that's kind of, kind of why we get all the jokes. Because a lot of the jokes are almost sexual puns or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah, pretty much it, half it really of the is. things that Roger Moore says is sexual innuendo. Right. They're like, oh, I'm just keeping... Britain yeah. stand up and and Money Penny asked him how Venice was and he's like, my contact there was writing me and it's like half right. I, I think I need to break break in right. uh, because yeah. when you uh, when you said you didn't know if the D and D alignment chart. Uh, uh, I'm just looking it up on Wikipedia. The source of good for everything. Chaotic good character favors change for a greater good, dis- disdains bureaucratic organizations that get in the way of improvement, and places a high value on personal freedom, not only for oneself but for others. Chaotic good characters always intend to do the right thing, but their methods are generally disorganized and often out of sync with the rest of society. They may create conflict within a team if they feel they're being pushed around, often view ex- extensive organization and planning as pointless, preferring to improvise. Which I think, to me, sounds a lot more like James Bond than uh, any neutral would be. Yeah, I would say, I mean, under the fifth edition rules, he would be just like a chaotic good character with um, a background that gives him a pretty strong allegiance to Queen of Country uh, under the new background system. Sorry. Well, if the question before the floor is, is James Bond a hero? Is he moral? Um, mm. I. Yeah, he has a code. I couldn't tell you from D and D, but uh, that's that's totally not in my wheelhouse at all. But what I can tell you is that the the lens that you always have to look at it through is that it's not he's he's a soldier. He's essentially he's a knight that's been brought forward into contemporary, uh, you know, twenty twentieth century, twenty first century. The the Cold War background though is just it's just window dressing. He's a he's a knight fighting wizards. That's the through line hmm. for James Bond. Hmm. And he's well, he's and, got a squire. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's Quarrel, sometimes it's Felix Leiter. Hmm. Um he's there's always a princess. 
you know, sometimes several, sometimes several. Um, there's there's always, you know, the 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 helpful innkeeper or villager guy. These are all, these are not spy fiction tropes. They're not even action movie tropes. They are medieval fantasy tropes. Hmm. That's what they are. Hmm. That is that is the framework that he's operating in. So when you talk about the D&D scale on the one sense, yes, absolutely, that's that's where he's operating. On the other hand, the 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 place where these things always run aground with critics or even with writers trying to reboot it or whatever, there's always the idiot that looks at it and says, "Well, no spy would do that. I have to fix this franchise." And then it just all goes to hell. Mm. That was what happened I think with Quantum of Solace. They uh they said, well, you know, the James Bond is dead. We need to do the Jason Bourne version. Hmm. And as a result, you got, you know, Jason Bourne turned up to 11 with all the Bond stuff that everybody loves kind of taken out. Yeah, I think when you I know, look at Quantum of Solace, and we've already heard it described as terrible and forgettable now. <laughs> and that's the thing I found with the movie is that I don't remember almost anything from Quantum of Solace. Well, you don't remember any of the action scenes or anything. It works as kind of a footnote. It works as a DVD extra to Casino Royale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's how I But that's it. It's a two-hour epilogue. Yeah. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more James Bond on Radio vs. the Martians. And we are back on Radio vs. the Martians. This month we are talking about 007, James Bond. And I want to kind of get into the meat of this, what we love out of these Bond stories, what we love out of these Bond movies, and that's favorite Bond tropes. This is stuff that pops up over and over again, and unlike a lot of cliches where we tend to get grumpy or mad, like, oh, I can know, I'm so sick of seeing this over and over, I'm talking about shit we love. I'm talking about, like, comfort food cliches, stuff that gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling inside of it. And I want to start tossing these things out there because this stuff is just too fun. I'm going to start with one of my favorites, Bond coming out of the water in scuba gear, unzipping and having a dry (laughs) tuxedo on underneath. (laughs) Really, everything about Bond's wardrobe is usually pretty flawless. I mean... I think there are probably a couple times when he gets his short ripped Captain Kirk style, so he can, you know, he can ha- show his bare chest. But he's usually almost flawless in all of his outfits. Oh, even after he gets shot, I think there's a, one of my favorite shots in Skyfall where he's actually been shot already, and he dives off of a train car that's being ripped away, lands in, gets up, and adjusts his cufflink as he gets <laughs> yeah. up. Because the guy has to look good. I, right. I think in oh, yeah. the thing with the uh, wetsuit, too, and he does this like two or three times in the series, is I think all he has to do is add a carnation to his lapel, and he's good to go. <laughs> he doesn't even have to comb his hair. Well, style really is very important for him. I mean, that's the defining feature of his... I mean, that's why... For me, that's why he uses the little tiny gun. It's more stylish to do that. You're you kind of, you know, if you were using a, a Desert Eagle or something, it would be over the top. And for him, it's all about sort of elegance and style. And there's a certain amount of masculine security that he has in that. Yeah. Like he doesn't have to show off like Dirty Harry right. does. I mean, no, no, no. this thing is eventually a mod- you know, a metaphor for your dick. And Bond is totally <laughs> cool. With he's al- he's almost like a British answer to American action movies. Yeah, you know, then that's that is actually a great, interesting thing that you bring up. And I'm I'm not trying to sidetrack you. I, this is the perfect moment to mention it. I was listening to a guy who is a historian from 
I can't remember if it was Illinois, I believe. Uh, and his whole talk was about James Bond, the American superhero, where uh, in reality that character is built around that he's a British secret agent and he's working for the he's working for the for the Queen, right? And he's he's a uh, He's uh, defending the world, uh, England, against the world's foes. But in reality, Bond is more of like a, a, an American-style Horatio Alger than he is like a stuffy, uptight society, high society member that you'd, uh, you know, that you'd consider to be this the trope for someone who's British. You know, the uh, the people who live in a damp little island nation and uh, they don't need to venture out all that much. They're cut their little hobbits, comfortable where they are. James Bond uh, goes around the entire world and uh, meets a lot of interesting people and is not afraid to make himself known. But I think there's a uh, if I was going to rebut that just a little bit, I'd say that the Britain that exists in the Bond movies is a very different place than the Britain in real life because Felix Leiter, the CIA agent, is his sidekick who shows up and helps him out. That it's right. Britain that is the great world power that is fighting right. all of the other evil yeah, powers. Yeah, weirdly, right? Yeah. I mean, because in, in real life, it's the Americans that do most of the espionage. Well, I mean, aside from who we're spying on, but... Brit- it, it always seems to me like this British power fantasy, right? It Where is. No, no, no. We're really important, you know. Because there's a line, there's a line in Goldeneye where uh, M says, "Somebody asks, is this live? Is this video live?" And M says, or somebody says, uh, "You know, we're not like the CIA. We don't wait until CNN reports it to, <laughs> to find, you know, find out what happens." Yeah, I think it's like what? What the CIA would have that? No, that was that, one of Ian, Ian Fleming's you. things from from a long time. Is that in from Russia with love? Um, the Soviet generals are sitting around talking about who who they need to kill to make a like a spectacle to improve their standing, Smirsh's standing, and they're like they're going through the various countries that have spy programs, and they're like. Well, the British spy program is the best. They're really the most effective. And there's just a guy named James Bond who's the best. And that, I think, is part of Ian Fleming's thing. Is like, he's going to be the hype man for all of Britain, you know? <laughs> if you, in all the James Bond novels, the original ones, no British person does anything bad. <laughs> there is not a British villain. Hmm. The only one that turns, that you think is a British villain is Hugo Drax in Moonraker. And no, he's really a German. Hugo <laughs> On their drafts. <laughs> that that secret German. He's a secret Nazi <laughs> that stayed on after the war and took a British identity. Mm. Um, well, just like 006 is yeah. a secret Russian right. Nazi. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no British person, and that's that was baked into James Bond from the very beginning. Is that mm. defensiveness about post-war Britain? Yeah. And um, you know, it shows up in the books, and some of it leaked into the movies. I think. Yeah. There's a scene in Casino Royale where. The American agent, Felix Leiter, says, I can't beat this guy, so we're just going to throw all our money behind Bond, because the British can beat him. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, they just know how to play cards better. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? They're just just that much better. It's in the blood. The original take on Bond, that this just got under Ian Fleming's skin and burned, was the critics dismissed him. The catchphrase they used that caught on was sex, sadism, and snobbery. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't turn me away, though. (laughs) I know, and we're all, all of us who are fans are going... Well, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say my my favorite trope going back to your question is definitely definitely all of the Q division 
uh, uh, weird gadget test set pieces. Like oh, every time they did, it just so happens that when Bond is there, they're always like blowing a hole in the wall or destroying a dummy in some weird way or starting a fire or blocking bullets. And it just so happens that it's right when Bond is walking through. Oh, of you, course. You get the sense that Q is like, it's pretty quiet for most of the office and that he's coming down in the elevator. And he's like, okay, get everything started. And you get the, right. That underneath all the derision that he just desperately wants the Bond to think that he's cool. So he's like, no, no, show him blowing us stuff up. We're gonna be, it's like the nerds want to show the jock that Let's they're awesome. Ten things at once. And one of my favorites was there was actually a boombox that fired a missile that they show, right. and he goes, right. "We call yeah. it the Ghetto Blaster." <laughs> okay, I've got another one. Assassins dressed as caterers. <laughs> oh, it's one of my favorite. Uh, you know, the- I hadn't really thought about that, but that does kind of pop up more it than shows- once. <laughs> Sometimes at the end of the movie, where Bond is sort of having a drink, sitting this one out, usually sharing a glass of wine with a beautiful woman who doesn't get killed in the course of the movie, and the last henchman who didn't get wiped out, the one loose thread shows up at the end and you see him like pick up the platter, put something in the food, or you see the bomb with a big timer on it underneath the tray and he rolls it. And of course, Bond has to turn the tables on him. It's right up there with another one of my favorites, which is Bond is about to get a piece of key information from somebody. And then out of a lattice or behind some curtains, the barrel of a gun comes out and shoots the guy in the back. <laughs> and my favorite version of that dart to the side of the neck. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yes. I love a good darting. I, I'm a big, I'm a big <laughs> fan of that. The, but that the enemy has to have a giant room full of computer consoles with lots of buttons and screens. Like that, that tends to show up over and over again. Back in a room somewhere, there's a computer console. That's because the production designer for most of the movies was a guy named Ken Adam, and he was the guy that brought that Ken, ginormous. Ken, Ken Adams is the name of my uncle, but go on. Sorry, the, Ken Adam was the guy that designed all these giant aluminum paneled rooms with the computer consoles Mm. and the really high ceilings and you know i mean if you think about it in terms of a secret headquarters this is really a bad idea (laughs) it's a bad idea for goldfinger to have his horse farm at the touch of a button convert into an evil mastermind lair (laughs) for the the robbery of fort knox i mean who who built his little tabletop model you know isn't that guy gonna it's like if they catch him and they're what if that guy talks to a reporter? Right. Is yeah. it Goldfinger that's sitting there with his little toy soldiers and right. his, his fake felt lawn and whatever? But I like the idea of him having these perfect scale models. And then this is the same thing in a couple of Bond movies because they want to explain the plot in a visual way. Yeah. What is his evil master scheme? So we're going to have these beautifully painted to scale models <laughs> to show you what they're doing. So in case the feds that's kick... That's important. Yeah, if the, the feds yeah. kick the door down, we have all this... Ev- what I was wasn't planning to rob Fort Knox. Push the button, the floor open. Uh, I'm just a modeler. And it's the same thing happened in View to a Kill where they want to flood uh, Silicon Valley. And they have it all planned out. It's just like, it's like he's pitching this thing to his henchman like he's Don fucking Draper. <laughs> Not your diamonds are forever where the, the giveaway, they find out where Blofeld is hiding because he's put a little scale model Derek on the, on the Lucite, you know, 
so display or something. It's like, why? Why would you do that? <laughs> why, do, why do you, in your private secret headquarters office, need to look at your scale model of where your secret hideout is? <laughs> why, what? He's like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but, uh, but you, haven't, you haven't touched on my favorite trope. This is uh, John Rogers, the guy that produced the TV show Leverage. He's currently working on the librarians. He did the Blue Beetle comics for DC. He's an amazing writer. He coined the name for this that is so perfect. I'm going to steal it. It's called The Evil Speech of Evil. Yes! <laughs> Where the villain takes it right before he's going to drop James Bond into the death trap. He explains to James Bond why James Bond is an asshole and why <laughs> I, the villain, am terrific. And and he launches into his his manifesto and then bond just looks at him and says well you are just a stupid policeman <laughs> or you know i do not expect you to understand my genius you know and oh this is a, it's like he becomes a hipster all of a sudden yeah you're dumb jock you're not gonna get this and actually as far as the evil speech of evil i actually wrote one down to to mention this because this is the one from goldfinger which oh is that's the best my all-time favorite piece of dialogue in any mm-hmm. bond movie this is back when or at goldfinger Sorry, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, Oric Goldfinger. Spoiler, dude! <laughs> uh, Oric Goldfinger has called a bunch of mobsters and gangsters to his ranch to pitch this thing like he's going to the board of directors going, this is going to be great, guys. You're going to love it. And he flips it over and he goes into this speech. Man has climbed Mount Everest, gone to the bottom of the ocean. He has fired rockets at the moon. Split the atom. Achieved miracles in every field of human endeavor except crime! (laughs) I fucking love that. I love when anyone openly uses the word crime. (laughs) And almost nobody uses it nowadays. Crime is a means to an end to power or some warped sense of justice Uh or the revenge or some other thing where they want to punish somebody. Never is it in its glorious sense. Crime is the end. It's not just a means. It's what we are doing. Using crime in an aspirational way in villain dialogue makes me so fucking happy. See, this is why he really had to there, right? Yeah. I mean, like the plot of Goldfinger is because of the Bretton Woods agreement that we'll peg currencies to gold. Arbitrage is worrisome. <laughs> it's the most boring <laughs> plot ever. They have to make it, you know, gold, and everything will be covered in gold. And, you know, they have to romanticize this because it's so boring. I'm telling you, you guys miss so much when you don't read the books because the books have even better versions of this. Mr. Big hmm. talking about how his dream is to raise Negro crime to new heights. <laughs> oh. Or, uh, when Blofeld is talking to Bond at the end of You Only Live Twice, which is like the third. Blofeld was so bad, he came back for three books and he had a cameo in The Spy Who Loved Me. But uh, the the You Only Live Twice is like the big throwdown between the two of them in the books. He's Because it's very personal for Bond now. He's killed Bond's wife of a day. Uh, and, you know, Bond literally has lied to the Japanese Secret Service about who Blofeld is so he can go there himself and take him out. And he gets captured, of course. He's getting the lecture in the dungeon, of course. And <laughs> and Blofeld is launched into this half-crazed tirade about, you know, when you beat me in Thunderball, I was trying to do this. I was trying to bring, you know, the 
world attention to the nuclear problem. And then, you know, with my bio-warfare scheme, come on, dude, you know, wouldn't we have seen the kind of pushback from Britain that saved us during the war? Cruel to be kind, Mr. Bond, cruel <laughs> to be kind. And then, and then now, with my special Japanese suicide garden, I am performing a public service for the Japanese public, and you're just fucking it all up. But I see you just don't understand. You just, you're just a, a blunt instrument. You just show up and you satisfy your brutish appetites for tobacco, alcohol, and sex while you gratify whatever grubby patriot. And it's just such a brilliant speech. It's so awesome. And, and, and Bond looks at him and says, hey, that's great. Why don't we get some chorus girls and we'll put it up on stage with Noel Coward in time for Christmas. And it's just nasty. It's just so awesome. And I, I wanted to end the conversation on tropes. You know what, fuck it, I don't want to end the conversation on tropes, <laughs> but I want to talk about my favorite Bond trope, and this is something that happens at the end of maybe a third of the Roger Moore Bond films. That's the movie ending with Bond fucking in an escape pod. <laughs> oh, I hate that. Oh. And it always ends the exact same way. Bond is fucking in an escape pod. And that's the point where the British high muckety mucks want to call in and congratulate him for saving the world. They hit the button. I guess there isn't anything where he has to do it. They can just plug right into a live feed. He doesn't actually have to answer. And they see him fucking. And that's when the boss goes, whoa, 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 whoa. What what is 007 doing? And then M goes, oh, 007. And that's when Q busts out with a pun, the best of which is at the end of Moonraker, where Bond is fucking in an escape pod coming down into Earth's atmosphere. And they go, what, what is 007 doing? And Q says, he appears to be attempting re-entry, sir. Right. Uh, didn't they do that in Die Another Day, too? I feel like one of the Brosnan movies had They one. did. That is Die Another Day. Oh, my God. No, no. no. no? Die Another Day is, um, I thought Christmas I thought Christmas came but Christmas. once a oh, year. Right. Oh, my <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. God. Right. That's, but that's another escape pod one or something. They're in some enclosed space. There's a, and why do these bad guys have escape pods with chilled champagne in them? He was, well, he was, you know. If you're gonna have escape, a, might as well. And a lot of these 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 bad guys don't even have love interests. They're going out alone drinking champagne in a romantic room. What the fuck is going on in there? Well, and does because, Bond really want to take his clothes off in that room? Probably not, because James, but you got to remember that James Bond is too cool to understand about things like internet porn and <laughs> your your private man cave and it's like he goes into the why is there baby oil in here? <laughs> <laughs> he's a very naive orphan character oh. oh i was gonna say before when we were talking about sort of the story elements of bond he's an orphan just like every uh you know uh, epic hero right i mean just like batman to some degree like we were talking about before but you know i mean like like luke skywalker or any other sort of classic uh campbellian hero he has to be an orphan of course well, that that lends sort of credence to the task. that lends credence to the the uh, is is it a fan theory? I'm not sure what it is that James Bond is not actually one person a continual one person over a few decades. That James Bond is a title, and I guess this is sort of this is sort of touched on the way that um, the Casino Royale '67 did it. Which, by the way, I need to ask the fact that in Casino Royale '67. Because they need to get down to the bottom of everything, and they're afraid that their cover is going to be blown. They name all secret agents James Bond. I always wondered if that was a joke 
based on how poor it was taken that George Lazenby replaced uh, replaced Sean Connery because this was produced after On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, because it's like in the end you have like there's like seals in the casino at the end who has 007 on there and it's like everyone's 007 everyone's James Bond but Lazenby actually says it in the in the cold open oh, right. his last line this, is this never, happened. this never happened to the other guy yes. I you know I first of all I firmly come down on the fact that it's a fan theory I think one of the strengths of James Bond is that you don't have hordes of people running around behind the writers trying to patch all the continuity mistakes and <laughs> right. the things that are fucked up. And um, there are many. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. I'll come back to this when we do high point, low point, because I have a low point on that. But, uh, oh. but um, the thing about Casino Royale 67 is I think that it was put together by people that really... I mean, there are really good parodies of James Bond. Um, the Harvard Lampoon did one called Alligator that was just, I mean, it was allegedly a parody of Goldfinger, but it was just a brilliant parody of everything about James Bond. And um, and it's a shame that it's a rare, weird book item that you can't find anywhere anymore. Um, but the the Flint movies and Casino Royale 67 and a lot of, I mean, Get Smart was probably the, the most intelligent of the parodies, but there was just a whole wave of these things in the 60s. And it's, I don't think it's a parody of James Bond. I think it's a parody of the phenomenon, hmm. the hmm. inescapable super spy 60s thing, because you had really Goldfinger in 63 was the, the trigger event. I mean, there had been Bond movies before. Dr. No was a hit and From Russia with Love with a hit. Goldfinger was a monster hit. Goldfinger had everything. It had toy tie-ins. The car was everywhere. Um, there were parodies. And Mr. Ed did a fucking James Bond parody <laughs> called Coldfinger. <laughs> My hand to God. Wilbur and Mr. Ed went up against Coldfinger. And that's, that's how pervasive it was. And... Um, so I think that's kind of what it was coming out of. It was kind of that lame parody that your grandpa or uncle does. It was the just just on the hind end of the phenomenon. So, mm. you know, that's why Casino Royale 67 is so insane. Mm. Um, it's weird. It's hard to find, too. It's weird. I know that the rights of the movie, I think, were bought by Eon Entertainment that owns the Bond thing. But they've never pushed that movie very hard. Uh, Especially, I accidentally watched it once. You accidentally on watched it. Yeah, that's really I the only way anybody Casino watches Royale. it. <laughs> I, I, I searched for Casino Royale on Hulu, and it came up. And I was like, what's this? And so I watched the intro to it. Oh, wow. I don't think it's on Hulu anymore, though. But I think I just checked. But Yeah, it's, it's uh, weird because that movie actually prevented the last of the Ian Fleming novels that had not been made into an official Bond movie from becoming an official Bond movie because they had the rights to the novel and they ended up doing a parody film instead. And because of that, this isn't really sort of interesting enough, Pierce Brosnan is the only James Bond that hasn't got to star in a movie that is based, at hmm. least ostensibly, on an Ian Fleming novel. Hmm. That he was the one who had to do all four of his movies were essentially original stories, even though they were named after various things, like GoldenEye, like you mentioned, is named after his vacation home. Mm -hmm. So those sort of elements are in there. So I want to get into one element of Bond that is a lot less 
fun to talk about sometimes. And I think it's the element of Bond that you can't talk about this character without getting into. And that's the issue of sexism with this character in this franchise. It's pretty hard to deny that the character of Bond often comes off as incredibly dismissive or condescending to women in some of his movies. There's more than one moment where he literally kisses the resistance out of a woman. There are scenes in Goldfinger where he smacks a woman on the ass and tells her to scoot along because there's man talk to be had. (laughs) And in uh, Goldeneye, they actually address this head on as part of the plot where Judy Dench, who is the new M, straight out tells Bond to his face she thinks he's a misogynistic, sexist dinosaur. (laughs) So is M right? Is the character sexist? And is the franchise? Well, those are questions with multiple answers. You have to ask yourself when the movies were being made, who was making them. I think the worst offenders, Goldfinger's pretty bad. Um, But I think Roger Moore is the worst. Really? Octopussy? Come on. Yeah, that's pretty sexist. That's like rape. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She pushes him away and says no. And doesn't even slow him down. That was the first one I ever saw. I mean, I... That really impressed upon me the idea that Bond is like that. That's sort of his character. Um, well, haven't, haven't they gone? And I, I, I don't, I don't know if I have much of an opinion on it. I can't. It's a lot of it's odious. But didn't didn't was it in uh, one of the Pierce Brosnan movies? They tried to do some kind of mea culpa about him sleeping with all the women, and he has some kind of it's almost a throwaway line like, "But I loved them all." That sort of thing, you know. Oh, it doesn't, oh, it doesn't matter how many uh, <laughs> uh, how many unwanted pregnancies and how many marriages that he broke up. You know, um, he, his his response is, you know, well, I loved them all. Yeah, the Pierce Brosnan Bond to me always came across as a sort of guy that forces everyone else to go through a bunch of HR seminars because <laughs> I can't afford to fire him. But they're just like, oh god, it's like they have another one of these things where we talk about appropriate behavior in the workplace, and you have all these coworkers going fucking Bond. <laughs> well, yeah, I think they try and address this a number of times. I mean, that scene with um, Judy Dench is, uh, you know, that's the first real scene with her talking to Bond at the beginning of the Pierce Brosnan stuff with Goldeneye. And I feel like they're trying to address the previous Bonds through that scene and say, oh, well, this is that was what he was like in this Cold War. And now we're in slightly sort of Cold War you know, post-Cold War and it's a new Bond. They do the same thing kind of with the Daniel Craig stuff where they talk about sexual harassment. They literally use the term uh, here and there. So I, I I think they try and address it. I just think that James Bond really is a 20th century masculine I- icon and it's gonna he's going to have some fucked up stuff going on there, you know? It's kind of weird because I, I see that too. And I, in a lot of ways, I look at what we're saying this is a whole new bond i really find the pierce brosnan one to be the one that makes me the most uncomfortable in this Mm. regard maybe it's the uncanny valley of him being so recent in our memory that i remember being alive and being a conscious consumer of culture like i was critical of culture it wasn't just something that was kind of shoveled to me and i enjoyed it in an escapist way but actually watching things in a critical way i was like 16 17 when these movies are coming out with brosnan and already then it just it feels weird it feels weird watching him and he seems to be the creepiest bond to me in that regard hmm. um he I is a, but he is a monster though i mean let's let's put aside the question of of how he treats women bond is basically a killing machine and he's a remorseless monster that's the weird thing too is that why so, does yeah, this, why, yeah yeah why does this make me uncomfortable 
Yet the fact that he murders people with a death toll that has probably more than one comma in it doesn't nearly as much. I can I, I don't really know what it is, but it does bother me. I don't think the Roger Moore stuff bothers me as much as it did you. And when it does happen, it bothers me more because I sort of it's like, ah, the 70s. It's like, ah, we should know better by then. <laughs> we should know better by the 70s. By the 90s. Yeah, the 90s, by the we 90s, really we definitely should. It's but yeah. was, you know, slapping hysterical women, for instance, which you see a few times, like that's mostly in the 60s, 70s stuff. You're not going to see Pierce Brosnan do that. That's true. So they kind of came, you know, maybe, but, but there's still the kiss someone into stopping to resist kind of thing. Yeah. And Pierce Brosnan does. And that really comes down to Connery. And here's the thing part. This is the part of the show where I say the thing that brands me as a monster. <laughs> oh, this is the thing, that, the thing that I can't take back, and I am broadcasting <laughs> this onto the internet. Oh my god, Connery is by far the most sexist Bond. He does the things that is the most cringeworthy now, and it doesn't bother me. <laughs> and I don't. And you know why it is? It's because it takes place in the 1960s. To me, when I see sexism, blatant sexism, and even casual racism in the context, in this location and time and the era of the 1960s, it's not a bug, it's a feature. (laughs) It's like everyone wears brown and orange and big lapels and everyone has sideburns in the 70s. Everyone is an asshole in the 60s. That's just the way that it is. (laughs) And so I look at the 60s Bond and I see that sort of Don Draper swaggering masculinity thing Mm. with Sean Connery. And I know this is me saying it as a white man living in the 21st century. So I'm really not the best judge of this stuff. But for some reason, it doesn't bother me in the 60s, but it bothers me a lot in every other era. That's that's so interesting. When you were talking about this, I was was thinking about... Pierce Brosnan, his first foray, which was GoldenEye. And it's interesting because about this whole implied or explicit violence, uh, which is that's what it is, right? If you're if you're holding a woman and twisting her arm behind her back or if you're forcing her to kiss you, it's violence, you know. And uh, so it seems like it's part of his character. Violence is part of his character. You have kind of an inversion of that with the on a top character. Right. Yeah. With the on top mm-hmm. character who is then who, who I think that was kind of almost a way for them to try to eat, normalize the sexual violence by basically saying, oh, it's 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 kind of a disgusting Ayn Rand fountainhead thing by being like normalizing a type of violence by saying, well, there are women who would not, not only like this, but, you know, this is what turns them on. That sort of thing, which further complicates the issue for me. I don't know. I don't know how uh, coming out the other side. I don't know how I feel about it, but it almost felt like that was their way because they made such a big fucking deal of it in that movie with the with the on a top character. Her being I, a I think in a larger sense, James Bond is self-referential, hmm. you know, I mean, in, in Skyfall. They directly reference gadgets. They're like, oh, well, gadgets were getting out of hand and we don't do that now. <laughs> you know, you see this over and over again where it references itself, its own weird tropes, right. and, and they move on from it. Or they, you know, I actually think that because we were talking before about all the um, computers everywhere, and Skyfall doesn't have the monitors as much in the villain's lair as just raw racks of computers. It's the way you. You might actually do it if you were a real villain. You wouldn't have big monitors with, you know, a giant map. You'd actually have the things you need to do the thing you're trying to do. Um, and so in that sense, that was referential. They do a really good job of that, uh, of keeping it fresh, but still keeping it within its own universe, I think, by being referential. Hmm. 
I go back and forth on this. I don't really love self-referential James Bond. You know, mm. I all going all the way back to George Lazenby saying this never happened to the other fella. You know, mm, I don't. Yeah, that was lowered. I don't. I don't like smirky James Bond. It's why Roger Moore is my least favorite, and my my most favorite is Timothy Dalton. Mm. Actually, Timothy Dalton is he's first of all he's the closest one to the literary Bond. He's not sexist exactly because he holds everybody in equal disdain um <laughs> you know he's he's and he's he's fairly monogamous on the whole com- certainly compared to the others and um the trouble with the dalton movies is that he didn't really have a wizard sized villain he had an right. arms dealer and a drug dealer right. for james bond that's like warming up that's, yeah that's that's he hasn't even out of the batter's cage with those guys you he know. needed a blowfeld caliber villain yeah yeah because it's like who is his villain well it's the other guy from the goonies yeah <laughs> and it's joe don baker <laughs> fucking mitchell is one of his super yeah. villains yeah i will say that i i, I went and rewatched uh license to kill because that's that was the one that i'd seen forever and I, I feel like the best part of the movie, the most memorable part of the movie, is just that James Bond gets to throw a guy into a vat of maggots. And I was like, I've never seen that before. You I like that off my bucket list. I like that he parachutes into a wedding. Right, well, yes. It's a great opener, but the movie is, is, is totally forgettable, except for the vat of maggots. <laughs> except for the vat of maggots. <laughs> uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with High Point, Low Point. And we are back on Radio versus the Martians. And yes, it's that time, kids, for high point, low point. We go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel of James Bond 007. So we're going to, as always, start low. We're going to get into the worst of James Bond. We're getting into low point. So I want to open up with you, Ryan. What is the low point of James Bond? So for me, it's the, and we haven't really talked about it in this episode yet, it's the fact that there was an intellectual property dispute over, you know, who gets to release stuff in James Bond. Most of the time when we have these fandoms, we don't have these competing groups. And there was, there was a guy who helped with the writing. Was it Kevin McClory? Yes. Um, helped with the writing at one point, And essentially that unlocked the ability to make other novels or, or and, and eventually there ends up being released at the same time, more or less, two James Bonds uh, with two different actors, you know, Sean Connery coming back essentially to do it. And to me, you know, I'm not like some guy who needs canon to fit together, but I still need, I guess I, I need there to be an artist, you know, I need, I need there to be some kind of soul creative group making something. And when there's competing uh, art within an intellectual property, a sort of a fandom for me, that's kind of messed up because it it pulls it back to reality. Like James Bond is a fantasy world, a really cool fantasy world about espionage and to get drawn, you know, to, to read about, Oh, well there were suits and countersuits over who gets, you know, credits on a book and rights. And, you know, I mean, essentially that went on for 50 years, this back and forth. And it, uh, and it even made Sean Connery go back and 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 be in a competing Bond film. I mean, that's pretty fucked up. I mean, that just it just rips you back to reality and the fact that these are movies and movies are about making money the best way you can. You know, it, it, 
sort of bilking fans on some level. And so to me, that's a serious. I like where that's the the artistic motivation there. This is about bilking fans. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't want to think that. I I know that that's true on some level when you're putting out a a movie in a in the longest running series. But (laughs) like, is you're trying to fleece the fans for their their new money. But I, I'd like to think that there's some artistry behind it and, and intellectual property disputes kind of pull you into that. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, because I think the two movies you're talking about are in 1983, both Octopussy and Never Say Never Again were yeah. both released, one with Moore, Roger Moore, and one with Connery, Sean Connery. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was a weird thing that came out of that. And I guess I disagree. I think I, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of evolving as I age into the anti-Disney, where <laughs> I wish these characters would be public domain. Mm. Um, but the one bad thing that came out of it, because clearly he's not public domain and I can't do whatever he wanted, is it prevented the use of Spectre and the character of Ernst Stavro Blofeld in the official James Bond series for decades. Mm. So that when Blofeld does appear in a Roger Moore movie, they don't show his face. You just see that he's in a wheelchair. He's a bald guy with a cat. And you're not allowed to say Spectre, you're not allowed to say Blofeld, and it bugged me just a little bit that they couldn't at least use their most famous villain in their series because of intellectual property bullshit. Hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess, Casey... Can you top that? What is the low point of Bond? Somewhat actually related. Um, My low point was the nexus, and I'm sorry for doubling up here, the nexus of what Casino Royale 67 was and how that relates to what I think is probably the most atrocious thing that Mike Myers has ever done to us, which is the Austin Powers series. Um, I did not realize the connection. I didn't realize that there would not have been Austin Powers if there was not Casino Royale, which is a satirical take on the at that point in time explosively successful James Bond film franchise and so Casino Royale was the first uh, Ian Fleming novel and it didn't get converted into a quote serious unquote Bond movie until Daniel Craig Um, but uh, Casino Royale is this weird pastiche of a psychedelic 60s parody movie full of terrible puns goofy as fuck sight gags and over the top camp it's basically it devolves into like benny hill style fast motion slapstick scenes all and it just like to me that shit is not funny and it's nails on a chalkboard and honestly like when watching it at certain parts um i cannot tell if this is like the 60s it was the 60s version of skinamax because uh, you know, although like regular Bond movies had beautiful girls in states of undress, this one just feels like softcore porn, like like masturbation fantasy stuff. Like I, I and maybe that was a genre of movies in the late '60s when they could get away with it. I don't know. Um, from a production standpoint, like some of it's the some the sets and some of it is pretty cool. There's some psychedelic elements that are like, whoa, that's fucking crazy. But um, it's it's this this movement from this weird ass this weird ass James Bond story that goes to Austin Powers as being a parody of a parody um, that it's a shame because I think I liked this, the first one a lot when I was a teenager and I didn't realize how bad it was until it backslid into eventually having jokes about drinking diarrhea and then you're just like this is not this is terrible what, what, what it's done to James Bond which can do some legitimately fun goofy stuff for a regular James Bond movie is now like you know, uh, Mike Myers in a fat suit making poop jokes. And it's just I, awful. <laughs> just awful. That's so funny. I mean, because I think, because, you know, you and I went to high school together. I don't know if everybody here knows that. But uh, 
I feel like you were a huge fan of Austin Powers when it came out. We, yeah, our little crew was a huge fan of the first one, but the, a huge, huge. This fan. is going I back mean, to Mike, Mike Myers in general. This, right? this is going I back mean, to Mike's comment that he made uh, a couple times ago that when you're six years old, you like certain things, and then when you become a teenager, you like shitty things. And only <laughs> only when you get older, like when you're thirty, and look back on it, you're like, oh, those things I liked was a teenager were really awful, and the things I liked when I was six were awesome. <laughs> you know, I feel like that was Austin Powers for me. For sure. Yeah. So that was my low point is the nexus of Casino Royale and Austin Powers destroying James Bond. Yeah, I know that they also Daniel Craig has recently credited the ridiculous with those of those movies with uh, preventing Bond from actually bringing back the more over the top elements from the past and keeping it mm, gritty. I don't doubt it. So if you like that, that's a good thing. If you don't and you miss that stuff and you miss the gadgets and cars, not so much. Right. So Greg, <laughs> low point. Well, I'm a book guy. I've always been a book guy. It started when I was a kid because I was often forbidden to see, you know, movies that mom thought were dangerous or whatever. Um, and But if I found out that there were books involved, I would seek out the books. And that was how I got into things like, you know, um, Logan's Run and, and, uh, and Star Trek and actually James Bond. Hmm. So, you know, when the Bond... For a long time, the Fleming books were all there was, and then there was Colonel Sun by Kingsley Amos, which is brilliant. It's a wonderful book. And then that's pretty much it for a long time. And then in, uh, I don't know, 1979, 1980, whatever, the the Eon Productions or whoever owns Bond, Glidrose, Eon, I've, I don't know who the actual property owners are, hmm. um, commissioned John Gardner to write a series of new Bond novels. Um, and and I was very excited about this. John Gardner is a, a very fine thriller writer. He wrote uh, uh, the Boise Oaks stories, which were turned into the movie The Liquidator with Rod Taylor. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote uh, The Return of Moriarty, The Revenge of Moriarty, two of the better Sherlock Holmes pastiches. So I'm on board for this. Mm-hmm. And his James Bond books were awful. Awful. They were just so wrong. They made the the classic mistake, first of all, that I always talk about, which is when you're writing James Bond, James Bond is not cool. His world is cool. Hmm. Everything is bigger and cooler and better. And, you know, Bond is just a guy. He just works in that world. That's his job is to live there. You know, the the I thought I was going to get the tough, cool, Dalton-esque Ian Fleming Bond, and what I got was the smirky Roger Moore Bond, but (laughs) it was even worse than that because he had been sort of politically corrected. Mm. He he smoked low tar cigarettes, <laughs> and and his girlfriends just before the seduction would say, "Oh, but it must be safe, James." <laughs> and, and it was just was like, really, really, I don't. James Bond does not think about the dangers of STDs ever. That's not part of. That's just no. You're just fucking with this. You're just that. Just don't go there. Why are you even going there? It was just so 
club-footed, and he just had a tin ear for what he was trying to hmm. do. Hmm. And and he he actually ended up publishing more novels about Bond than Fleming. Oh. And they, they got worse and worse, and I fucking showed up every time because I'm an idiot, <laughs> and I'm a trained fan, and I have this nerd forgiveness thing going on. Mm-hmm. It's what got us through the first two seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation <laughs> and, and the Star Wars, you know, the, the Star Wars prequels and all that. You know, we keep showing up. We go, fuck, I hate this. Why am I here? And, you know, that's my low point. Uh, I'm going to go somewhere that I think is, I don't know. I'm going to assume it's going to be a little bit controversial. Uh, George Lazenby. Oh. Not on Her Majesty's Secret Service. How dare you? Yeah. I want to clarify. I don't mean the movie he's in. On Her Majesty's Secret Service is a great Bond movie. It's actually one of my top five Bond movies. And you know what? It would be higher on that list if any of the other five actors was in that role. It's an exciting movie. Um, it has some great performances. Telly Savalas is a great Blofeld. If anyone's going to play Blofeld that isn't Donald Pleasance, hmm. it's got to be Telly Savalas. That guy is right. playing my live-action Lex Luthor. He actually lays out his plan for making entire species of animals sterile <laughs> and putting the entire world's ecosystem in danger to Bond while decorating a Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh my God, Diana Rigg is the best Bond girl. Yeah, she is. She's the one that I can believe James Bond would fall in love with Mary because she's the one that actually rescues him in a couple scenes. Right. And one point actually is battling bad guys while driving a car through a demolition derby <laughs> and she's enjoying herself. <laughs> That's who Bond would fall for. She's amazing. And these two actors carry the film. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't hurt that the, there's this awesome set on top of a mountain. It's like ski lodge. It's like, it's like the sort of place with a 1960s bent that the wizards in Conan would live in <laughs> on top of a mountain with all kinds of crazy rooms. I, I rest my case. <laughs> okay? Wizards. I'm telling you. I, I fucking love it. I love the fact that there's, there's uh, these brainwashed girls that are there to get rid of an allergy and they've been turned into killers that are going to release a super virus. I love that there's so many bad guys on skis with machine guns. (laughs) It has great chase scenes on foot, on a car, on the side of a mountain. It has mobsters versus supervillains at the end. There's so many great things, except for Lazenby. Yeah. So, but wasn't he just... He was like a super fan, right? Yeah. Wasn't he, that? He actually, I mean, yeah, he barged into the office of the right. people knowing that they were looking for a new guy. And his spunk, his moxie actually got him the role, even though he wasn't a trained actor. So isn't this, I mean, it's almost like that thing where they always, you know, we go back and forth about whether movies should be made by fans or by people who've got more of an objective sort of way of looking at it. And maybe in a sense, that's the problem with him. Is that he's too? His head is too much in it, you know. It's so weird because he looks like if you if you read the way that uh, Ian Fleming originally described the physiognomy of him, Lazenby looks so much more like the way Bond. You know, the actor. Don't remember the name of the stage actor, American actor that he wanted Bond to Ian Fleming wanted Bond to look like. Hoagie Carmichael. Hoagie Carmichael. The yes. young Hoagie Carmichael. Um, it was Lazenby looks so much more like the prototypical. Bond, but you're right. He doesn't have the swagger. I mean, he, there's something that's something is missing there. He doesn't pop off the screen. Yeah, that 
the other characters don't necessarily notice Bond being Bond, but the audience should. Hmm. That if he's in a crowd, especially if he's in a group and an ensemble cast that has Telly Savalas and Diana Rigg in it, who are both amazing, he has to be the guy who's the star of the film, and he isn't. There are a couple exceptions, though, and there's a scene where... Uh, Diana Rigg pulls a gun on him, and his hand just jets out and grabs her by the wrist and twists it. And he has kind of a little hint of a smile on his face, but the rest of his body doesn't move just his arm, and she drops the gun. In that moment, he looks like Bond. Hmm. There's another scene where, at the very end, after she dies, she's the victim of a drive-by shooting after their wedding. And if there was going to be a place where a not-trained actor was going to fuck up this movie, it would have been him quietly mourning her. But he kind of nails it. Hmm. It's hmm. a guy who's clearly not super comfortable with crying and being open with his emotions, who's allowed himself to be opened up. He's just quit. He's going to be a person now. Right. And it was all just ripped out of his hands. And it's subtle. It's subtle in a way that a lot of people would have done that, like, classic kung fu movie. No! <laughs> you know, screaming into the rain moment. But they make it quiet. And I guess it's punctuated by the fact that the the Bond movie theme for On Her Majesty's Secret Service isn't this big rock theme. It's not a sort of a, a, a funkadelic 60s theme. <laughs> it's a song by Louis Armstrong. Yeah. It's a love theme. Yeah. It's a theme to that movie. Yep. There's sort of a general Bondian theme that goes throughout the movie that's instrumental. But these are the sort of things that sort of make it stand apart. And I just keep thinking about how much better this movie would have been if it had been Connery, even if it had been Roger Moore. No, I think no, no. Timothy Dalton is Timothy who Dalton was actually asked. That's his. That's totally his wheelhouse. If that had been a Timothy Dalton movie, it would have been the best Bond movie. Absolutely. And there's one other part in this movie that I think that that Lazenby nails, and that's he gets into the bad guy's hideout by pretending to be this like fussy British genealogist. Uh -huh. who's kind of a nerd, and he wears a kilt, and he's like, oh, mo, mo. he is so much more charismatic as that character that the he's playing is undercover. The voice is dubbed. You know yeah. that, right? No, it, oh. is that, that is Lazenby, though, right? No. The no? voice is dubbed. It's the guy. Oh, well, fuck you, Lazenby. You just ruined it for me. <laughs> I was going to say, that was the bit of the movie That's, where he's the most it's charming. It's one of the things that he's bitter about. That he didn't get to do that stuff? Yeah, he worked really hard on the voice, and they dubbed it. Hmm. Oh, God. Wow. Well, you know what? Sorry, Lazenby, they made the right choice. <laughs> because I, it, just, it feels like this is, and you used this phrase earlier in the episode, Greg, it feels like a fan with a lot of money playing Bond. Not, hmm. not being Bond. He's not hmm. being Bond in that movie. It's sort of like a, it's like a fan film we're watching with a guy who's a big fan of the franchise, and he's got so much money that he can get Telly Savalas and Diana Rigg, and he can get... Um, John Barry to do the theme and he can get all of these big name people involved in it and oh my god it's just because if what what becomes a low point to me is always what could have been almost down the line it always comes to this one element that held back this thing and the movie's so amazing that he doesn't ruin it and oh my god any other actor would have made this one of the top three, if not one of the top two Bond movies of all time. So I'm going to say George Lazenby is my low point. But on that, we're going to pull ourselves out of the gutter. Time to go from the bottom to the very top. What is the best of James Bond 007? I want to start with you, Greg. Where is James Bond's high point? Well, objectively, 
I am going to say it is the movie version of Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. Mm. That is my James Bond updated for a new audience in a new century. Mm. That's my high point. But mm. it's not my personal high point. That's If somebody asked me what's the best Bond, that's I would just point and say that's it. They nailed it. But my personal high point, I got to go back because it was such a rush and it literally it changed the course of my life. Uh, when I was a little kid, my next door neighbor, my introduction to James Bond, he had two LPs. One was the soundtrack to Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. And the other was one of those weird knockoff records that you would get back then. It was just the James Bond music or the James Bond themes by the pulsating big band sounds of 007. And there was this amazing painted cover of, if you Google it, you know, you can get a look at this amazing cover with kind of a not quite Sean Connery caricature surrounded by beautiful women. And my next door neighbor kid, Sean, and I had this big debate about whether this one woman was actually naked under the blanket or, you know, it was, it was a big thing. And 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 uh, I was adamant that she probably was. And Sean said no, because then my dad wouldn't let me play this record, which is the kind of logic you get when you're eight years old. But uh but that was my introduction to James Bond. I, I literally, we loved this music. We had never seen any of the movies or anything, but that that John Barry tough, cool jazz with the heavy bass line was so amazing to me. And it just, and then there was like a big thing. ABC actually broadcast Goldfinger. Oh, and wow. this was back, this is before cable. This is before HBO. You, you kids today, you have no idea. <laughs> a movie on TV, a big movie on TV was a big goddamn deal. Right. And, uh, and we watched the premiere of Goldfinger. I think this was, I don't know, 1972 or something like that. And I was just awestruck. You know, I, you know, it, it was kind of a close call whether I was even going to be allowed to stay up and watch it. But, you know, it was network TV and mom kind of gave in and I discovered that there were books. So I leaned on my mother about this because the Ian Fleming Bond novels were in the grown up section of the library. And I was like only, you know, 11 and you had to be 12 or 13 to get a grown up library card. What? Other, they really did that back they then? They really did that what? back then. You weren't allowed into the grown-up You mean part. you weren't allowed to go to the National Geographic hardcover books and find the books that had the breast, breasts of the African women? No, no. It? You were allowed to do that. Oh, you weren't okay. allowed to check them oh, out. Oh, okay. <laughs> to check them out of the library, you needed to have an adult sign off on your card. Huh. Mom didn't want to do it because she'd heard that these Ian Fleming stories were very sexy. And, uh, and I... Oh, my God, the rhetoric I brought to bear on this. I think I used the word liberty at one point. Oh. <laughs> um, I, you know, I just I put everything and I going all I, Clarence Darrow. On I, this. I, I would like to think that it was my 11 year old Clarence Darrow mojo. But I think I, I think it was just my 11 year old relentlessness that wore her down. But I, I got to check out a James Bond book, and the one that I picked was On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, wow. And it is all the awesomeness that Mike described, but turned up to 11. 
because there's none of the smirkiness. There's no George Lazenby. The bond that I saw in my head was the picture on the back cover of the Goldfinger album. Mm. So to me, Honor Majesty's Secret Service stars Sean Connery, the really tough, angry, struggling Sean Connery with Goldfinger that was from the picture. Mm. And, uh, and that book just set my hair on fire. I already wanted to be a writer, but now I knew I wanted to write tough, cool, badass, forward motion, adrenaline stuff like this. Awesome. And and to this day, that book is my favorite of the novels. I think it's technically probably the best of the novels because Ian Fleming had by then abandoned his attempt to be literary and impress guys like Raymond Chandler. Right. He knew what he was doing. He's it's like, all right, fuck it. You know, I just I just belly flopped with this experiment of the spy who loved me, which was the novel that was told from the girl's point of view and is very mawkish and romantic. It was it was a, a failed. Ex- it was another one of those experiments. that's like just Fleming, for Christ's sake, you know, <laughs> do what you do. And and Ian Fleming, you know, chasing celebrity the way he was, he really. He, he had to have that public acclaim. And it's mm. like, fuck it. I'm going to go do James Bond the way people want James Bond. And Honor Majesty's Secret Service is one of the best of the books. And to me, it is it is the moment. And today I've grown up and I write tough, nasty pulp fiction. Um, the Domino Lady that's just out has a lot of Ian Fleming in it. Um, just to, not in terms of the storytelling or the plotting, but the literally the way he used words, the diction, I the the word choices, the paragraphing, the way he puts stories together physically. I think it's just baked into my DNA as a writer, and that's where it came from. That is my high point. Ryan, what is the high point of James Bond? So I'm kind of glad I'm going right after um, <laughs> Greg. Is that like because you know Greg said. Casino Royale is objectively uh, the best. I I kind of disagree that there is such a thing as objectivity, you know, when it comes to fan stuff or, or, or fiction. For me, Casino, Casino, <laughs> Casino Royale is personally my favorite. And so it's hard when we're talking about high points not to just pick a movie. And so for me, I think that it's got to be Casino Royale. Even though Skyfall is the one I keep watching over and over again, and I watched it today. Um, Casino Royale, because I was, you know, a teenager in the 90s, watching the crazy Pierce Brosnan ones, and, and the ones before were such a, you know, the last one was in 85. So those just seemed like the, you know, history. The Oh, no, 89, sorry. But, the you know, to... to those are all sort of just like the history of Bond. The real Bond was Brosnan. That was cheesy. And, you know, I I grew up with it, but it still wasn't, it wasn't cool. For me, Casino Royale really became just such a huge break from the rest of of Bond. And it was just so um, sort of gritty and uh, silent and Hmm. uh, introspective. And I mean, you know, the same thing where, you know, Mike was saying there was a a great moment in Her Majesty's Secret Service. There's no like screaming. It's just a silent moment that's important. I feel like I, you know, the moment in the shower that I mentioned before in Casino Royale, um, which is such a beautiful thing. And really the whole thing, the, the audio for it is just so crisp and the fights are more, uh, 
sort of, I don't know, just a little bit more real for me. And, and that's kind of what I want. I wanted a bond that, uh, that breaks from the rest. Um, and, uh, a story that's, uh, a little bit, um, introspective, I guess. And that's kind of what I get. You know what my favorite part of Casino Royale is? It's the mm. chase scene at the very beginning on foot. Yeah. And what oh, I yeah. love about it is that the guy that Bond is chasing is like fucking Spider-Man. The guy <laughs> is doing all this crazy parkour stuff, and the movie doesn't try to make Bond do it. It doesn't try to force him to keep up. Right, right. He actually jumps through a wall yeah. to keep up at one point. That, <laughs> that's so much of what he does, because he can't keep up in a straight foot chase, right. is he right. consistently does clever things to cheat and use uh, these shortcuts and doing these little things like jumping on that like high-rise platform thing and then shooting the thing so it lowers him super fast. And mm-hmm. it's just great. It's exciting because I don't think a lot of movies today really commit to doing an exciting foot chase. Like They don't believe that one guy trying to catch another guy on foot can be exciting and you just like nail biting and tense, but they just they absolutely nail it and they go right out of the gate with that. And I loved Casino Royale. So hmm. Casey, I know that we've been building to this a while and you've been just kinda of gorging yourself on Bond for the last month. What is the high point of Bond? Uh I I think I'm gonna disappoint you then because my high point for Bond is Goldeneye 007 for the Nintendo sixty four. So I knew you were gonna say that. I knew it. I be- I almost wrote it down knowing that you were gonna say that. It's and this is obviously it's a product of my time if uh if we're using if we're as we constantly are using Greg Hatcher for a contrast, um, <laughs> if it's you bothering your 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 mom to uh, for a library card or some change to buy a book off the spinner racks, it was me bugging my mom to rent a video game from the video rental store. Um, and Goldeneye sixty four not only was the thing that I did to while away countless hours when I should have been in school during my senior year playing multi four four player split screen multiplayer. But it also was it also was one of those one games that succeeds on levels on uh, about it's also one of those games that succeeds in doing things that games based on movies never really do, which is uh, capturing faithfully the sort of scenarios, the scenes, the characters, and the tone of a movie without without sort of belaboring it or abusing the the gameplay genre that it's actually aping. Um, and also, it, in the uh, other than the fact that it's got a great multiplayer that gives it a sort of longevity for a game that you could just play that I could after twenty years I could still play uh, you know some multiplayer in James Bond and it would be right back to where I was you know sixteen years seventeen years old. Um, but it also has the one rare thing that happens, which is t- it's not really a role-playing game, but it, you do play a role, and you do feel like James Bond. I feel I feel like the Batman Arkham Asylum, Arkham City games are the same way. You 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 have gadgets, you have guns, you use stealth to get around. You have clever alternate ways that you can do to try to sort of do do what your objectives are. You feel like James Bond, and not only uh, it, not only do you sort of work your way through a plot that mirrors the movie very well i mean it's incredibly faithful to the movie um but it has this thing where to uh to unlock all of the sort of characters and maps in the multiplayer mode through the various levels and difficulties you've got um you've got targets that you need to do so you know on this difficulty level if you can finish it in a minute and 35 seconds you can unlock something so it has you doing this thing where you're 
playing the level over and over again, trying to take shortcuts, trying to shorten up stuff. And to do that, you really do end up feeling like James Bond because you know what James Bond would do? He would run through facility, throw a timeline at the wall, shoot a guy, set off the bomb, run through the automatic door. You know, he would uh, he would know just in his head he would be able to perform it all flawlessly and get through the end alive. Um, so my high point is becoming James Bond and playing it over and over again for GoldenEye 007. I love that game. I guess I used to get yelled at all the time while playing it. I never even played the single player game. I always played it in multiplayer at a friend's house. No, oh, everybody. Yeah, and I got screamed. At, everybody played that game. I got screamed at all the time for playing and choosing odd job in multiplayer <laughs> <laughs> because he's short. And that wasn't why I picked him. I like the like, I just liked odd job. He throws a hat at people. You throw a gold brick at the dude's chest and it just fucking bounces off. That's badass. Odd job is the best evil henchman ever. Yeah, yeah, and he's a good reason yeah, I got screamed at in high school a lot. <laughs> yeah. So getting into my high point, I'm going to say something that will probably make Greg lose all respect for me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Here we go. Live and let die. Oh. oh no. I fucking love Live and Let Die. Um, I don't care what anyone says. I know that you're not a fan of the Roger Moore Bond. I'm not, but I love Live and Let Die. I fucking it's, love that it's movie. It's just batshit insane. I, I just enjoy the shit out of this movie so much. I, I mean, I tend to think of Bond as being sort of on the same kind of scale as Batman, that there are different ways to interpret the character. Like Batman has on one end of the spectrum, we got Adam West Batman with Biff Bam Pow and Shark Repellent. And on the other end, we have Frank Miller Batman, who drives around in a tank and acts like a fucking sociopath. So, But he's the same character. All the same tropes are there. Roger Moore, to me, has always been the Adam West James Bond. <laughs> this is him at his utmost cheesiest. And what I love about Live and Let Die is it is just so fucking batshit, this movie. It basically, to me, turns this entire franchise up to 11 Without going full-on stupid the way that Moonraker does, where they have like a dog doing a double-take at one point. <laughs> in this movie, we have Roger Moore starring in a black exploitation film as the world's whitest lead. <laughs> he is the sorest thumb that Harlem has ever seen. And he's walking through this movie that he does not belong in, going up against Mr. Big, and... Then the movie turns briefly into a voodoo movie. <laughs> there's a voodoo priest, and there's a psychic played by Jane Seymour with actual supernatural powers that James Bond apparently fucks out of her. <laughs> <laughs> and in the world's oh. weirdest turn, and now, Greg, this is the way you describe it, and I absolutely love it, the movie turns into Smokey and the Bandit for 20 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> there's a 20-minute part of this movie where it's an extended chase scene going through Louisiana where Bond is battling henchmen and this southern racist sheriff character <laughs> Sheriff J.W. Pepper who is like the poor man's Buford T. Justice <laughs> waddles his way into this movie with these weird physical comedy this uncomfortable racism and goes through every beat that of every episode of the Dukes of Hazard, eventually climaxing in the complete destruction of his car and him throwing his hat down in outrage. <laughs> right, obviously. And uh, they fucking brought him back for another movie, but that's that's not even this topic. For Live and Let Die, what I love about this movie, not only is the villain uh, Yafet Kato, who we know from the movie Alien, 
Oh, was, or, and Homicide Life on the Street. Homicide Life on the Street. Amazing. Great actor. He gets the best Bond death of any Bond villain. Yes, he does. And it even comes after having James Bond suspended over a tank with, was it sharks or alligators in it? I think it's, I think, I think it's, it's sharks. Well, suspended, it's sharks. In the swamp, it's alligators. Yeah. It's, it's, it's both. It's both you in this You can movie. get both in this what movie. Is, what does that tortilla <laughs> commercial say? Why not both? <laughs> so he, he gets this like weird shark repellent gun that apparently has inflatable explodey bullets in it. Yes. And blasts him with it. The guy inflates like a blimp, floats to the ceiling, and fucking explodes <laughs> to Roger Moore going, he always did have an inflated opinion of himself. <laughs> but the best part of the movie, and while I was marathoning these, I was mentioning this on Facebook and actually soliciting suggestions from people who I know on there, what Bond movie should I watch next? And this was the Bond movie that my sister Megan recommended to me. <laughs> because she said, you gotta watch the thing with the alligators. You gotta watch the Bond movie with the alligators. <laughs> and what she means by that is there's a scene where... The henchman to Mr. Big, who's actually a disguise, he's actually Dr. Kananga, who is a Caribbean dictator in a rubber Scooby-Doo mask. (laughs) Actually, his henchman with a robot hand takes Bond out to his crocodile farm out in Louisiana, drops him off on an island surrounded by crocodiles, and just leaves him there. This eventually leads to James Bond, like Super Mario, (laughs) jumping across a bunch of floating alligators and getting to the shore. It is one of the stupidest slash wonderful things that I have ever seen. It's, to me, I guess, the apex of Bond as a cheese character. It's him being sort of dashing cheesy, but also just killing people with no more, you know... (laughs) <laughs> no remorse whatsoever. It, to me, that's my James Bond. And I don't know why, even though objectively I like so many more of the Sean Connery movies better. They've got better plots, better villains. Sean Connery's a better Bond. But, oh my God, I love in an intangible way that I can't quantify and justify rationally, <laughs> live and let die. So live and let die is my high point. And on that note, I want to thank everyone who joined us on this panel today. Greg Hatcher from Comics Should Be Good blog on CBR, Comic Book Resources. Thank you for being here. It's always a pleasure. And our good friend, game designer from Ryan Shaddock Games, our good buddy, Ryan Shaddock. Thanks. And as always, Casey Doran, thank us for... Thank us. Thank you. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank all of you. Thank us one and all. Thank you, Casey Doran, for joining us on this episode. You're very welcome. And on that note, we will catch you folks next month. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Gold, Mr. Bond. All my life I've been in love with its color, its brilliance, its divine heaviness. 
I welcome any enterprise that will increase my stock, which is considerable. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. <laughs> <laughs>